Well, good morning to everybody out here on the lot. It's starting to feel a little bit like fall right now, which is fantastic. I love this time of year. And good morning to everybody online as well. Good morning to church here at Redemption. Good morning to uh, our communion Sunday, which is going to be great. And then like Trent said, we are actually wrapping up our summer series uh, that we've been doing, looking at this idea of what we are called to do and called to be in the world that we live in. So it's been, for me at least, a very good series, just personally, as I am reminded of what actually matters in the Christian life, as opposed to some of the things I try to make matter that may not matter as much, because we are here deposited in this world by Jesus to make a difference for him. So that's the whole goal behind this. Now, before we get underway with this morning, I want to remind you, as we try to as often as possible, that we do have a church app, and on that app, you want to be tagged in there for a couple of reasons. One is we do have notes for Sunday you can follow along with, which is a great great tool, especially with this summer. I've been trying to put little waypoints in there. You can fill along in the blanks and that kind of thing just to kind of keep us tracking. But the other reason is because it keeps you aware of news or things that are going on with the Redemption Church. And you're going to want to particularly be aware of that in the next few weeks. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, One is we're starting a brand new series next week called Bittersweet, uh, and it is looking at three obscure laws, two tenacious, feisty, scrappy women, and one perplexing God. It's also known as the Book of Ruth. And I love the Book of Ruth because it is a kind of a story about the season of fall and the harvest. We're going into that. Wanted to do it for that reason. And I also think it's just a beautiful story that has a lot of great lessons. And so we're going to do that for the month of September. And then in October, we're going to start our fall official series. But as we're moving into that, we're still trying to figure out exactly what we're going to be doing as a church when it comes to meeting. So we know we're going to meet physically through September, and we are working on some relatively creative ideas to still have a physical uh, kind of gathering together as we go into October, because we did talk to the school district. They're waiting till October before they start to work through kind of outside extracurricular things in the building. And so with that, we know that we won't be in there in October. So we're coming up with some other things that we think might be kind of cool and creative and different. And we're hoping that within the next week or so, we will be able to tell you about that. But if you're missing Sundays or whatever else, you want to make sure you're connected with the app. That's going to be a great way for you to stay aware of just whatever things we're trying to do in a creative way as we look at the month of October, and then we continue to play it from there. So what I love about that is that the early church did not have convenience either. You know what I mean? Like when I I study the early Christians, they're like, oh, now we're going to hang out in some caves for a while. Okay, now we're going to go do this in a house. Now we're going to go do this at the temple. Like they were always kind of winging it, but they were doing that because Jesus matters to them. And it's to be the same for us. And so I'm excited to see how Jesus teaches us through this particular season, because there's going to be a season for sure. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray right now, get us sort of uh, settled in for the day, and we're going to jump right into this final installment in our series. And so let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, um, I thank you for reminders And I thank you that your message to us calls us to something far beyond our own capacity or ability. It calls us to something that causes us to rely on you, to look to you, not just like once a day during some quiet time moment, but really throughout the day to have you transform us, to have you overlay your heart in us, to have you live out your life through us. And so I pray that this series has helped remind us of those things. And even this final little installment of the series inspires us two such things. And so Jesus, we look to you to teach us today, to inspire us and to guide us so that we can be more of what it is you've called us to be. And so Jesus, I thank you and we praise you this day in your good name. Amen. 
So first of all, before we get underway, I just wanted to say shout out to Pastor Scott Thompson, who rocked it last week. I was gone. He was awesome. Give him a big hand because he really did a fantastic job. He was the right guy to talk about hope. We sent the right man for the job on that one. And so that's really, really great. Now, as I was thinking through this final message, I was thinking about this truth. And some of you that have been around for redemption for a while, you know this about me. Um, I'm a little hesitant to sometimes tell people that I'm a pastor when I meet them in the community. And I I have that kind of hesitation, not because I'm ashamed of Jesus, but rather I want them to get to know me before they kind of think a little odd about me, all right? And, And what I mean by that in a particular way is there's this thing that as soon as I tell a person I'm a pastor, there's this shift in the disposition. You can see it in their body language. They kind of step back like I have a booger on the end of my nose or food in my teeth or something like that. They're like, and then they're like, oh, you're a pastor. Like I caught them doing something bad just by telling them what I do, you know? And then it turns into this thing. They're like, well, I'm really sorry about the language I just used a minute ago. And I'm like, no, it's okay. And then they tell me about how, you know, my grandfather was a pastor. They have to tell me about some family member that was also a pastor. It's that whole thing. And so it's just this weird, awkward moment. And, And then they try to make small religious talk with you about things that You're like, that doesn't really, it's not where my headspace is at. It's not what I'm thinking about. In fact, literally yesterday, my wife and I went so we could buy her a car and those exact things happened. So the guy that was the sales guy was like, he's like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And it was, oh, well, my son, he wanted to be a youth pastor at one time. Like, yeah, there it is. There's the family member connection. And then the lady that was like running the floor, she comes up to me at the end of the whole thing. And I said, man, you really keep those people in line. She goes, yeah. She goes, but I heard you're a pastor. And I go, yeah. She goes, so all that cussing you heard from me in there, well, Jesus knows I love him and that I cuss. I'm like, that's fine by me. I'm okay with that. So it's all, it's all good, right? But it's funny because then in the small talking that they want to bring up, they're like, so being a pastor, that must be really rewarding, Right? Like, well, not during a political season or COVID. No, it's not really. Um, very far from rewarding, actually. So no, it's not that, you know? And then, then it's like, oh, well, well, what do you do to get paid? I'm like, that's funny too. I mean, we don't, I sell chickens door to door. It's an awesome thing, really. It's, and I barter a lot and I gamble online. It's just something crazy, right? So, uh, you know, so they asked, and then they inevitably asked, so how did you know, like you were, you know, like that called thing? And, and that's the weirdest one for me. Cause I'm like, there's a calling? Like, like, am I supposed to be the dude that was waiting around on the couch? Like it's the draft and the general manager calls like, dude, you're eating your nine yard dip. You're going to play for the Seahawks now. But it's now it's like, God's like, you're going to play for my team. I'll be, yeah, you know, is that the calling or was it something where I'm supposed to be down at Tolton McDonald Park? And I see a the burning, flaming ficus that says, Matt, join the ministry and do, you know, it's like the sense of call has this pressure behind it. Even when people apply for jobs to be pastors, it's almost always what the search committee wants to know. When did you sense your calling? Now, here's my dilemma with this. Uh, First of all, I I, I think that word sounds loaded, especially when talking of pastors, because it has this sense of almost supernatural proportions, right? Like you heard the voice of God tell you what to do. And often that's really not the case for many people in ministry. And so that's one thing that kind of sits weird with me. The second thing that sits weird with me is this idea that uh, when I look at the New Testament, it seems that it's less about a calling to leadership in the church, and it's more about a desire, right? There's just this sense of drive to it. That doesn't mean God isn't a part of it, but the terminology of calling doesn't seem to be there. 
Perhaps what's most dear to my heart is the fact that when we speak of calling, we make it sound like it's for the professional, right? The clergy, the dude with the collar or the cross on his shirt or the necklace with the cross and the guy that speaks on a Sunday morning, those are the called and everybody else is not. But when I look at the Bible, I see the opposite is actually true. That when we read through the New Testament, we see that every one of you and myself, if we follow Jesus, we are called, right? We have a calling on our life to do some things. And that's been the series. And so the series started off and we say, here's the bottom line, man. You are called from your old way of life. You are called to a person whose name is Jesus. And you are called for the purpose of advancing his kingdom, showing his disposition, bringing his heart to the world, letting your hands and your mouth and your feet be the things that show Jesus to people that need to see an authentic, true, real gospel-based Jesus. So that's what you're called for. And so from that, we said, okay, therefore you're called to holiness, right? To love people in mercy and justness. And from that, we said, you are then called to things such as freedom, to serve one another. We said, you're called to bless even when you're cursed and to do good even when you're facing bad. You're called to peace even in the midst of division and you are called to hope the noun even when you are facing a world of despair, and so in that whole list, we're see, we see that we're called to be different or unique in a world that's sort of average on those topics. That is our collective calling and our mission. And so that's what we're seeking to do, right? And not simply trying to live this calling based on what we say or what we proclaim or what we believe, but doing what we do because of what we say, proclaim, and believe. Like the, the last thing we want to be about is touting an ideology or an orthodoxy or a theological vision for this world that doesn't play itself out in the way we live. Because what people are looking at is not our mission statement. They're watching our disposition. They're seeing if we actually so believe this book right here, we will do the hard stuff of this book. And I believe the hard stuff isn't the tough ethical things. I think the hard stuff is leaning into that stuff of the Sermon on the Mount or that stuff of the fruit of the Spirit or that stuff of the definition of love in First Corinthians. That's the tough stuff that we are to embody to live out our calling. And so as we look at this this morning, and if you're following along in notes this morning in the app, the first point is this. Our calling is something that is to be exercised, not simply something to be enjoyed. This idea of our Christian experience, our shared faith, Jesus calls us to something, not simply to enjoy it, but to exercise it. Because I find so often, even as a pastor, when you start to look at publishers and Christian materials and everything else, there's this idea in the American vision of Christianity that it's about our own spiritual edification, about our own intellectual kind of sophistication. But, but when you really look at the Bible, you see that it's to be far beyond that. It's not supposed to be just about my faith and my experience and my family values and that's it. No, there's this missional aspect to it. This idea that, again, we are deposited in the world for a reason that goes far beyond ourselves. Even if it costs ourselves some comfort or some ease, we're supposed to live in unique ways. Because what I see throughout the New Testament is we are called to be change agents for Christ. Living models of a different life. We're the demo mode, if you will, to display what heaven would look like here on earth. And so from that, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
we see the last of our statements on calling. And it says in verse 10, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. So all the things we've learned about our calling, here Peter says, work hard to prove that you're called and chosen. Now, some people, when they look at this passage right here and they see the word chosen, they get all weirded out. Like the Calvinists get excited. Like, ah, there's the word chosen, man. I'm as excited as a Seahawks fan week one, you know? But like my Arminian friends, they look at that word and they're like, oh, I'm as nervous as a Mariners fan thinking about like the wild card, you know? Like, Like people look at this differently. I honestly think Peter would be like, you're all missing the point. Right? The debates about the theological nuances of this passage are not what's in Peter's mind as much as this idea of more than debating the merits of that, prove by your lives that you're something different. Prove by your lives that the power of Christ is in fact so potent, it makes you a different type of people than the types of people people interact with in the world. That you are so uniquely disposed to the the nature, the heart, the passions of Christ that you emulate that to the world around you. That's what he's focused on, right? What that means for us is that we are to show people that life is in fact better with Jesus. Not that we're better people, but that as we face life, life is better with Jesus because Jesus gives us what we need to face life well. It's this idea of showing that when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things will be added to you, we go, that's our priority. It's an ownership of the greatest commandment being our greatest ambition. That I just want to love God and love my neighbor because God has loved me as a neighbor even when I was against him. So that's to be the heart of what we're engaged in. And in that, he says what? Work hard. Work hard at this. Now, I want to be clear. He's not saying work hard to like be saved, work hard at keeping your salvation. That's not his topic. His topic is saying, you know what? If you so believe this message, then all the more you should want to work hard at doing it, right? Of seeing it accomplished in your life. And here's the thing. We all know about working hard because we've worked hard at many things in life, right? Maybe you worked hard at trying to get good grades. I know for me as a high school student, I worked hard to dig out of bad grades just to get passing grades, but I worked hard. And and some of us, you know, we've worked hard to make the team or worked hard to build a business or worked hard to graduate college or worked hard to fix a marriage or worked hard for any number of things. We know what hard work feels like. And so you should take that idea and just import it into what Peter's saying. This is the stuff that we should work hard at in our lives. Working hard to prove our calling. Proving that this book isn't just some old book filled with a bunch of rules, but rather we see it as a guide to not just merely healthy living, but servanthood living for the sake of Christ. Like, that's the way we should do this. Letting this book direct our actions and reactions in life. Working hard to show that Jesus' wacky way of doing life, because it is wacky, man, is the most enriching. So you say, great, Matt. How do we do that? How do I accomplish that? Well, here's the deal. You don't accomplish it at all. At least not in your own drive or your own tenacity. We need to work hard, but not by working harder, right? Just white knuckling and biting down and saying, I'm just gonna be a good Christian. That is not Peter's message. That is not Jesus's message. He doesn't say work harder at being Christian. He says work smarter at being Christian. In fact, that's number two in your notes. The proof of our calling flows from the power and promises of Jesus, 
right? So 10 verses before Peter says, here's your calling, make it sure, prove it, work hard. He starts out in verse one by saying this. He says, I'm writing to you, those who share the same precious faith we have, this faith that was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. He says, may God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So this starts off with some reminders, right, in those first few verses. The first is the reminder of a gift, that faith has been given to you by Jesus. That's his gift. And in that, you have an opportunity, which is that you can have more grace and more peace, but that is rooted in a priority, and the priority is growing in the knowledge of God in Christ, right? So he's like, you've got a gift, right? And in that, there's an opportunity for more of that gift to feed into your life, but you have to make then certain things a priority in your life to pursue that. And in that pursuit, the thing that you're prioritizing is a knowledge of Christ, And I want to be clear, this knowledge of Christ is not simply, oh, so I need to do more Bible studies. I need to listen to more podcasts. I need to take more sermon notes. That's good. That gives you the grounding in these things. But what he's talking about is a deeper, more intimate knowledge, a knowledge where you know that Christ is in your corner, a knowledge where you know that Christ is real in your life, and a knowledge that is willing to then live out your life rooted in that knowledge. That's different than information. No, that's a knowledge that gives you inspiration for life, right? It's like my wife, Ellen, back here. If I said, I know about my wife, but I don't really know my wife, you'd be like, you're a terrible husband, right? It wouldn't make any sense. Part of what I know about my wife is our connection, our friendship, our our sense of mutual trust in one another. And so that's the kind of knowledge that Peter is setting as the target. That's the dartboard. That's the bullseye. That's what we're shooting for is that kind of knowledge. And so that's what he is encouraging, right? But when we drive toward this and we draw near toward him, there is power in that. Verse three, It says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by the means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And so we see another call there, and that was our first message. He calls us to himself. But you see in this, that in this calling, he gives us so many little dividends in the process. Now, I read this and I think about a statement that people love to make, which is God won't give you more than you can handle. That is from the book of First Opinions, all right? (laughs) That is not in the Bible anywhere. You will not find it in the Bible anywhere. And it's baloney to quote it because you know what I found when I read the Bible? God is more than capable and more often than not will choose to give you more than you can handle. He just will. And so will life, and so will pain, and so will sin. There's all sorts of moments where we have on our plate more than we can handle. But what I love about this is that in the context of that, there is an offer for his power to work through you. And that's what you're seeing in that text, right? It's not that you're going to have so much that you don't have to worry about handling. You know, you're going to have so much, you, you have to go to God to handle all of that. And what he promises is he can get you through to the other side, maybe not in the way you want or an envision or the end of the story that you would choose, but he promises to get you through to the other side in a way that if you lean on him, you will come through it both godly and God-empowered. In fact, that's the nuance there. He will carry you through with the weight of his character. That's what it means by glory there. And he will carry you through with the resolve of his virtue, which is the word excellence. So he's trying to help us understand how that all works. And so he continues. 
He says, because of his glory and excellence, his character and his virtue, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Notice the stacking up of inspirational words in there, right? Glory, excellence, great, precious, divine power, divine nature. Again, what Peter's trying to get his listeners to understand is that you have more than you dare realize if you tap into the one who empowers that. The problem for myself, probably for many of you, is we get so distracted in all the busyness of life and all the worries and cares and concerns and stuff and everything else, we just don't tap into the power. It's not that the power isn't there. We're just not tapping into it a whole lot. We're busy doing a lot of other things missing out on what could be. And so Peter's trying to get us to realize that, no, don't you realize that just as Eli was baptized representing new life, from that he now has divine nature and power at his disposal? Again, if he leans in, if he desires to know more of what that means, if he is truly dependent all throughout the day on God and seeks God's very best for his life, this is what God is going to do. And so Peter's trying to really kind of bump us up in our vision here, all right? From this, you might ask, well, then how do I enable my calling? How do I kind of live out this whole thing and prove it, as Peter talks about? Well, it's the third thing in your notes. The proof of our calling is displayed in living out the priorities of Jesus. Just as much as you focus on the power and promises, you have to say, all right, then I want to own the priorities. His priorities, not my priorities or my proclivities or my passions. And not doing this out of duty or obligation or simply raw obedience. No, it has to be something deeper. That says, I want to connect with God in such a way that God does a thing through me. And when you do it that way, it's far better. In fact, he kind of starts into this in verse 5. He says, in view of all of this, in view of everything that Jesus has given to you, he says, make every effort to respond to God's promises. He says, in other words, lean hard into living these priorities of Jesus and then from that, you'll experience the promises, power, and passion of Jesus. Now, here's the thing about this. By the way, is that the paraglider guy? Because if it is, just for the record, for Christmas, I want one. So, because that thing looks really, really cool. So if he comes flying by and you're just kind of focused on him and not me, I understand. Go back and watch the video because that's really cool. So, no, but I was thinking about this, this idea of, of what it is he's inviting us to and what it is he seeks of us when we kind of engage in these priorities. And it's the difference between riding a roller coaster and watching somebody ride a roller coaster, right? It's different. Hey, there it is right there. There he's flying through. Asta! All right, so I can either try to ignore it or I can embrace it, all right? So, and it's just too much of a draw. I'm glad it's past the trees now so you can just look at my bald head instead of an awesome flying thing. So, no, but I was thinking about how this is authentically, like what, what he's inviting us to is this difference between riding a roller coaster and watching somebody ride it, right? Like it's cool to watch somebody, but you don't get a thrill out of watching another person do it. The thrill is in the riding yourself, right? And so in that, I really think that what Jesus is trying to invite us to is not just, hey, we can be a spectator to other Christians who do this really, really cool. No, he's like, I want you to take the thrill ride. I want you to saddle up and do the hard things that will provide in your life a thrilling life in me if you do it, right? That's what he wants to take us to. And so you go, great, then what's the ticket to ride? What do I need to do to ride the thrill ride of what Jesus is offering in responding to his promises? Well, it starts in verse five here as we read through it. It says, in the context of this, supplement your faith 
with a generous provision, which is like a heaping helping, right? Like really dump it on the plate. Supplement your faith with a generous provision, a first moral excellence. Moral excellence. And you're like, oh, does that mean be a good person? Well, kind of. In the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, the classical Greek idea of this word is an item or a thing or a person that does what it was most designed to do. That's what it literally is getting at. So uh, a paraglider, it's doing what it design, is designed to do when it flies, right? And a truck, when it rolls. Some of you have trucks that don't roll. That means it's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? But when a thing does what it's most designed to do, that's its moral excellence. So in our lives, if we are then rescued in Jesus, we are given all of these powerful promises, this divine nature, you bear his image. You are most built to represent God in this world. You are most built to show the love and grace of Christ in this world. So when you go, what is my moral excellence? That's your moral excellence. You're most built to be like Jesus. That's what you're first called to do. So he says, man, you want to live your life in such a way there's a heaping helping of being a lot like Jesus. Right? You want to live out your moral excellence. From there, number two, he says, add to this knowledge. And again, this is less about information and it's more about a deep intuition. Taking the values of this and living it out in our community, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, on our jobs, whatever it is. Like that's this idea of knowledge. It's a knowledge applied, not just a knowledge known, not just a knowledge kept for self, but a knowledge given away to others in a way that beautifies and and changes the world for flourishing as opposed to decay. He says, next in this, add to knowledge self-control. Ugh. Have mastery over our actions and our attitudes. Oh, our attitudes. Our perspectives and our words, our temperament, that's a tough thing to do, but this is what we're to focus on. Not only self-control, but also patient endurance. See, there's a relationship between these two because self-control is all about saying, you know what? I'm gonna put God's priorities above my own impulses. That's the first one. But this idea of patient endurance is saying, you know what? I'm gonna face life's pressures and problems, trusting God, praying a lot to God, and thanking God even in the midst of the bad times. Not thanking God for the bad times, but being thankful even in the midst of the bad times. That is the idea of patient endurance. The fifth thing he says is then heap onto this godliness or literally God-likeness. It's a character that uh, is basically looking at the character of God and saying, I just want to imitate that because imitation is the greatest form of flattery or in our case, imitation is the greatest form of worship. And so the way we should live is that we want our friends and neighbors to know, hey, if you want to understand who Jesus is, if you want to understand what God is like, watch my life. That's godliness. Godliness is not just being a good person. Godliness is saying, I am a billboard for what Jesus would look like if he was walking the planet. Watch my life and you're going to understand who he is. Which is, that's a lot of pressure. But that's the essence of godliness. From there, he says, brotherly affection. In the original language, it's the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's all it means, brotherly love. And so we're to be loving toward one another, forgiving toward one another, understanding toward one another, long-suffering toward one another. Like, that's the whole essence of this thing, right? And Jesus talks about that. He says in the Gospel of John, he's like, you want to show the world that I'm, I'm legit, I'm real, I change lives? Then you guys should love each other in a way that everybody else is blown away by. Like, if that happens, man, this is... It's off the chain, right? 
But then he wraps it up and he says, in context of all of this, add to this list a love for everyone. A love for everyone. When the world looks at us, they should be like, you Christians really are the most loving people. You're the most understanding. You're the most warm-hearted. You're the most caring, invested, self-sacrificing. You really do look a lot like Jesus. That's the way the world is to interact with us, whether it be to our friend or our neighbor, or even as Jesus says, our enemy. This is the way we change the world. We change the world by bringing a love to the world. It's just different. It's just different than what the world interacts with. Peter says, this is the list that we own. And if we invest into these seven areas as we pursue and display, he says in verse eight, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a knowledge that's a working knowledge, that's a life-changing knowledge, that is a earth-transforming knowledge. He says, but those who fail to develop these ways are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. There would be a lot to say about that, but I think just in a very brief way, when we do these things, we are proving to the world that there is power behind our Jesus. And when we don't do these things, we're missing out on the power that Jesus seeks to display through us for the benefit of the world. And so from that, what I kind of look at for this whole section here is that the center of the Christian life that we all claim and proclaim, the center is not ease or spirituality. It's not simply doctrine or obedience or laws. It's not family values or even social good. The center is Christ. The center is living close to him, living like him, so the world can come to know him. That is our calling. That takes us to number four in your notes. The proof of our calling requires actual effort to be like Jesus. How does Peter say it? Well, it brings us back to verse 10 where we started. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. As I was reading through this this week, um, I, I, was, I was confronted, not just personally, I was, I was confronted as a, as a Christian leader in a context where I couldn't help but write in my notes, we have a lot to prove. We have a lot to prove, I think, right now as Christians, particularly our brand of Christianity is evangelicalism. And, and as I continue to interact with people that don't believe in God or maybe people have walked away from God or people that have really big questions about God or whatever else, I, I find the same subject keeps coming up, which is, why don't you guys look more different? Or why aren't you more of what I see in Jesus? Or why is it that I read about Jesus and then I see certain things in my world or experiences I've had and it doesn't seem like the two really touch all that much? And it just reminds me of how much we still have to prove. See, back in the day, it used to be apologetics was really easy. People were like, I don't know if I believe in the Bible. Like, oh, okay, well, let me get my Josh McDowell book. All right, evidence that demands a verdict. Here's a historical proof for the authentic Jesus of the first century. That's what we, we used to do it. And, and people would be kind of okay with that. They'd be satisfied with that kind of apologetics. But here's the new apologetics. They say, I'm not concerned about the history. I'm not concerned about the accuracy. I'm concerned about whether you're living it. This last couple of years, I've known more people walk away from their faith because they just throw their hands up in the air and they go, there's no power behind it. 
there, there's no transformation behind it. They're just, they're just like, I don't see it. I see Christians that are fighting and they're political and they're judgmental and they're hypocritical and they're entitled and they're complaining. And they're like, I just, why would I stay with this? They still like Jesus, but they leave the church. And it just reminded me, or again, I was just so convicted by, we have a lot to prove. And I don't say that to be harsh with this or mean. I hope that it actually inspires us to say, yeah, if this book is true and this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is true, there's power, there's divine nature, there's this gift given to us, promises made. Man, we want to lean into this. We want to be different in light of what this is talking about. But the great thing about this is number five, the final thing in your notes, what is proven? It is rewarded. We don't just prove it and suffer. We prove it and it's rewarded. Verse 11, then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Remember what we learned in the gospel of Luke, die and will face Jesus. And for those who really just followed, he says, come in, great job. You represented me well. Man, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for for making much of me. And he pulls up a seat at the table and he sets you down and he serves you because you served him. That's the heart here. When we serve him, he says, well done. I want to serve you. That's been a message I've tried to push and encourage and remind as often as I can. And I will continue to do that for the same reason of Peter's final words here. He says, therefore, I will always remind you about these things. Even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth as you've been taught. He says, it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. I hope to live as example. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you again as I have almost every week in the series for tough words. I thank you for big challenges. I thank you that you don't ask us to uh, participate in a faith of ease, but a faith that really can change the world if we embrace things like what Peter says here. If we embrace our calling in that list of things that we've looked at, whether it be peace or holiness or freedom, to do good, that whole list of things, just that we would lean into those callings more than maybe some of the other callings we take up in life, some of the, the futile fights or debates or battles that we pick where your word completely reminds us and constantly reminds us, don't pick dumb battles, right? Instead, live out your calling. Help us to love you and love others in the way that you've called us to and to do it with faithfulness and a desire for you and a desire for others to come to know you. So Jesus, we thank you. We need you and we praise you in your good name. Amen.